you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 132. Psalm 132 tonight. And if you want to follow along but don't have a Bible with you, we've got some under the chairs there. It'll be page 519. Page 519. It's kind of in the middle. Maybe left of middle. Page 519, Psalm 132. The series is Collide. Emotion meets truth in the Psalms. And I want to remind you again because I'm trying to drill this into your brain. If you haven't noticed, we keep saying this in different ways each week. Uh, God calls us to be emotionally authentic, and he calls us to be submitted to the truth. So the challenge is for us by temperament, we're going to choose one or the other, right? We're going to run to one corner or the other, but God calls us to both to be fully uh, authentic people that are also challenging and being challenged by God's word. And so that's the the model in the Psalms, that's the prayers that we're given to pray here, that's the songs we're given to sing, um, and this is to shape our own hearts. This week we're calling it Remember the Promise. So one of the things that we do when we come together and, and gather to worship corporately is we remember the story of who God is and what he's done in our lives. Uh, so you'll see that on the slides and you'll hear that in the words of the songs. We're walking through this kind of creation, fall, redemption paradigm, right? God created all things good. He made us good. He made us for his glory. We've fallen into sin. We've rejected his leadership in our life, yet God chased after us in love. He sent Jesus to save us, to forgive us, to transform us. He wants to make us new, and we're headed towards a world where all things will be made right. And so we want to keep rehearsing that story every week. That's why we gather to worship. And in the Psalms, you see this kind of thing where uh, in some Psalms, it's just drilling down to one really specific emotion, and we've covered that sort of thing. Uh, but then in other Psalms, it's, it's kind of a global retelling of history, and that's what we have this week. We have a lot of talk about the history of Israel and about King David and how he plays into the history of Israel, but also world history. Um, and so we, we've talked before how the Psalms are broken into five big sections. Y'all remember that? Raise your hand if, if you've heard me say that before. Okay, some of you have been with us. Uh, there's five big sections to the Psalms. So if you're just flipping through the Psalms, uh, it'll say book one, it'll say book two. And book three, or section three of the Psalms, is the one that most emphasizes the, the destruction, the tearing down of Israel. So we've talked about like in a trilogy, that's kind of the, the part of the story where it feels like the bad guys are going to win. And so in that section, this third section of the Psalms, Um, The Israelites had been thrown into exile, right? They had sinned, been disobedient, and the bad guys were winning. And at the end of that section, we had Psalm 89, which, like our psalm, also talked about the Davidic kingdom, King David. So these great hopes that David, the king after God's own heart, uh, would change things. It was kind of the golden age of Israel, and there was a promise that a future king would come that would be the ultimate king of the world, right? Right? So we now, with our Christian perspective, understand that future king to be Jesus. Uh, But they didn't fully understand all that. They didn't have all the details yet back then. And so Psalm 89 is the end of section 3 of the Psalms asking, God, have you forgotten us? Are are you going to fulfill this covenant you've made with David? Many scholars say then in section 4, the answer is God is still king. There's all these Psalms in section 4 that say God is still king. God is still on the throne. And that's a good answer. And I'd even encourage you to follow that pattern in your own life, right? When, when you're left holding the bag saying, God, is this really going to be the way it, it's going to be? Is, is this going to be my life? To remember, to remember the section four of the Psalms that God is still king. 
God is still on his throne. And that really does bring us some peace. That really does bring us some encouragement. But the story comes full circle. And now in section 5, almost the end of the Psalms, we're back to the promises made to David, the promises made to Israel. Right There are all these covenant promises made. God says to Eve, you're going to have a son. Someday will be born as a human that will defeat evil. God comes to Abraham and he says, through you, the whole world will be blessed. He comes to Moses and the people of Israel and he says, y'all will be my treasured possession. You're going to be a light to the nations. And he makes these promises to David, which is what our psalm is about today. And he says, not only are you going to bless the world through Israel here in this little golden age in history, but someday there's going to be a forever king that's going to come through you. The ultimate king is going to be born of you, David. So we see all that packed into Psalm 132. It's like the answer to the hanging question that we saw in Psalm 89. So we'll read together. Psalm 132 says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. So they're, they're calling on God to remember. Like, okay, God, let's renew this covenant. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships that he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And then skip down to 10. He says, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And remember, anointed is it's another word for Messiah, right? Christ. So you're Christ, you're anointed one, you're Messiah. Don't turn his face away. Verse 11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. So again, Psalm 89 leaves it open. The question is there, God, you made these promises. Are you going to fulfill them? And here in Psalm 132, we're saying, God, fulfill your promises, and we know you will. We know you're a promise-keeping God. We know you will do this. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at it in more detail. Uh, God, we, we ask for your help. We pray that you would teach us. And God, you know the, the, just the breadth of, of emotions and concerns and, and even uh, knowledge of your word here in this room. And, and this is an impossible task if, if you don't meet us here. If your spirit doesn't help us to understand who you are and what you're saying and open our hearts to be able to even listen. Um, so we ask for your spirit to come to help us. We know that you love to do that. And so we, we pray that you would. We pray in hope, uh, trusting you. And we ask you to teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have made a promise that was very difficult to keep? Has that ever happened to you? Some of you, well, if you're married, I know you can raise your hand. Okay. Um, but a lot of us, right, we've made promises that are hard to keep. Uh, some of us have made stupid promises, too. Have you ever made a stupid promise? Yeah, some, a promise you wish you hadn't made. Right, so we've all made different kinds of promises. Um, I had a friend that made this weird promise, uh, and it, was, it seems kind of bizarre and silly, but he made this promise to another friend that he was going to eat dipping dots at his wedding. Right? Sounds kind of weird. He was a teenager at the time, okay? Y'all know what dipping dots are? It's like a type of ice cream. It's a little tiny circles or balls. Okay. And, and so somehow, random conversation, my friend as a teenager tells his youth leader, Christian youth leader, I'm going to have dipping dots at my wedding. And youth leader is like, no, you're not. You're stupid. No, really, I am. I'm going to have dipping dots at my wedding. I'm going to eat 
dipping dots at my wedding, and the youth leader's like, no, you're not. Your, your wife's not going to let you do that. No, really, I am. I swear. I promise. And so he makes it a vow. He makes it a promise, something that he swears that he will accomplish. And so youth leader, trying to encourage my friend not to just make vain promises, says, okay, you've you, you got to not mess around with this kind of thing. You've you got to be a man of integrity. So I'm going to draw up a contract for you to remind you of this promise you've made. Just trying to kind of encourage him in his walk, you know, getting to know the Lord, trying to figure out how to be a promise keeper and not just someone that makes random promises. So we actually wrote up a contract for him that said he would do this. So he's trying to help him along. And eight years later, I meet this guy. I get to do his wedding. So I'm officiating this wedding in February. And the friend comes to me and says, oh, hold on, I need you to take a picture of me before you leave eating dipping dots. And I didn't know all the background story, right? This is the first I'd heard of it. I was like, why, why do I need to take a picture of you eating dipping dots, right? You have a photographer. I need, no, he's like, take this picture so you can text it to our friend, the, the youth leader guy. Uh, he's a mutual friend of ours to prove that I did it. And, and so I took the picture and sent the message and the guy was, his other friend was so encouraged. Wow, I can't believe he did it. But this, this friend, the kid that did this, the kid that made the stupid promise at 16, but then fulfilled the stupid promise at 23 or 24, he said he really appreciated that youth leader teaching him how to be a man of integrity. Because we can all admit that's a stupid promise. But we are so often not promise keepers in our culture. We, we are so often so flippant about promises, about keeping our word, that he appreciated that that was just one little step in his growing up where he'd been taught that it's important to keep your promises. And that's important because our God is a truth-telling, promise-keeping God. That's what covenants are. Covenants aren't only a promise, but covenants are a promise and more. And throughout the Bible, we have God making promises to us of the great things that he's going to do through us and in spite of us. And we have that here in the Davidic covenant. The promises that really start off with David making some promises to God, and then God making promises to David and to his future. Um, The psalm is really split in half. It's really two big promises. The first ten verses are a promise that David makes to God. And then the last part, it's like nine verses, eight verses, are a promise then that God makes to David. So let's look at the first section first. Oh, there's a picture of them eating their dipping dots. It's a close-up. See, there really are dipping dots. That's a picture I texted to our friend. So the first section, we are called to remember David's promise. So let's remember David's promise. Let's look at it. Starts off uh, where the singers of the song, again, remember at the top it says Song of Ascents. So these are songs, a special category of psalms that they sang climbing up the mountain to go worship at Jerusalem. So they're going up to worship at the holy place. They're going up to worship at the temple. And they're remembering who God is. And this is really the longest, most complicated one in, in this section of the, of the camp songs that they would sing going up the mountain. This is the most complex, long one we have. Okay, so it's, they're all grouped together here in this section. And, and in this one, again, they're singing this, and so they're singing these words to God. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. So they're telling God to remember David's promise. Now, you know, they give it to us to remember as well. That's part of how we worship is re- we remember the things that God has done in the Scripture. But they're telling God, they're saying, God, remember David. Remember in David's favor all the hardships that he endured. Remember the sacrifices that David made. And then verse 2, how he, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. So that, that's the promise he, he swore. He made a vow to God. Verse 3, 
This is a vow he makes, right? I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So uh, two things in the promise here. There's a few verses. Uh, one thing is, is what is he trying to accomplish? He's trying to find a permanent dwelling place for the Lord, right? So in the Old Testament, God uh, considered his dwelling place the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle. It was a tent uh, where people worshiped God, right? And so the Ark was a box which had the Ten Commandments placed in it, a really incredible golden box, right? And it had statues over it with cherubim. And then there was this thing called the mercy seat where this uh, special uh, day of atonement sacrifice, the blood would be poured out on the mercy seat. Um, so I'm going to summarize. I'm just going to you know, go into summary mode here. We've got the law of God, the box, and the mercy of God, the mercy seat on top. Okay? So if you look at this theologically, we have the sacrificial system that teaches Israel that they need mercy, and we have the law. They need justice. And so that's where God lives. God lives where his law meets his mercy. And those two things are together, right? Justice and grace together. Now we as Christians would say that happens at the cross, right? But they didn't have all those details yet, so they had the best symbol at the time was, was this, was the ark. This was where this cloud of God's presence came down and it dwelled there. The Holy of Holies is what they called it, the temple, the tabernacle. And this was his dwelling place. It was considered like his throne, right? Like God is the king, and this was his footstool, it was said sometimes, or his throne, or the place where he came down and dwelled with his people. And so what David is promising is not to make an ark. They already have an ark. It's not to make the the place where the law of God and the mercy seat is together. What David is saying is, I want to make a permanent fancy place, right? Because David lived in a fancy palace. And the other part of the, the parable is, or the promise is kind of a, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's important for us to understand as students of the Bible, is that he, he's speaking poetically here, right? As a matter of fact, this is not an exact quote from anything we have in the historical books. I believe this is a poetic retelling in song, right? Because they're shouting this song as they're climbing the hill to worship. So they're singing poetically. They're exaggerating, right? In a, in a love song or in a poem, you exaggerate. Have you all ever heard that before in a song or in a poem? Raise your hand if you've seen that. Some of you? Okay. The rest of you have no art in your life. But, um, but typically we do that in art, right? So that doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it a certain genre, um, you know, genre like type of literature, right? So there are historical books in the Bible where it says this happened. And we say, okay, that happened. And then there's uh, prophetic and poetic books like this where it's giving kind of an exaggerated version. So w- what this means is David actually slept, Okay. So it says here, he was not going to sleep or enter his bed until he had fulfilled this promise. But that's not technically what happened, right? Uh, the way we would say it in today's language, language is we would say, I'm not going to rest until I finish this project. Have you ever said something like that or heard someone say something like that? Right, so you didn't really mean it literally. I mean, some of you have been on deployments where you literally didn't rest for days at a time. But for the most part, when we say that, we, we just mean... I'm going to be relentless, right? So David is promising, he's making a vow that I'm, I'm not going to leave any stone unturned until I finish this project. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to devote the rest of my working energy to this. I won't rest. So, so that's what it's saying. And I, I think that's important because we want to say we're Bible people. We, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We take it seriously. 
but we take it seriously ac- according to genre. So we, we're going to read poetry as poetry, and then we're going to read history as history, and there's different, different kinds of uh, writings in the Bible. And so here, we look back at the historical books, uh, 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7 are, are where a lot of this happens, and that, that gives us a better understanding about what actually happened in the historical books. So he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a permanent house. A- and what happened is uh, David had this beautiful palace, and he realized, I have a beautiful palace and fortress, but God's place is still kind of temporary. And it was nice. When you read Exodus, it was, it was incredible, but it was still temporary, and he wanted to build something permanent and awesome, right? He just wanted to build something incredible to honor God. And when you go back and you read the historical setting, and I'd encourage you to read it this week, in 2 Samuel like 5, 6, and 7, tells the story of David. And in that setting, what we see is that David, although he is one of the great heroes of the Bible, knew, he knew that he was king because of God's grace. He, he knew that he had this administration and a united Israel under his reign because of God's grace in his life. I think this is really important to remember and easy to forget. I, I forgot this and really just kind of relearned it this week as I was studying back some of the history, is that this was an incredible civil war that was happening with David and Saul before he became king. I mean, it was like tribal warfare, bloodshed, betrayal. It was just years of, of war. And the fact that Israel was now united under his leadership, I mean, it's nuts. The, the only way that could have happened was God's grace. And, and that's what David came to realize at that point in the story. He recognized, God, you have, you've placed me here. You've built this house for me. He, he had a sense of awe and worship and thankfulness and a posture of God is gracious. I don't deserve this, and God has been gracious to me. So I encourage you to go back and, and read that. It's, it's interesting. Even There's even this part where like a, a treaty was going to get worked out, and Saul's assistant Abner came and spoke to David, and David was open to working out some kind of settlement. And then David's uh, right-hand man general, Joab, is jealous. And so he goes and murders Ahab, or Abner, right? And so it's just all this, this murder and backstabbing and all kinds of out-of-controlness, stuff that we're all very familiar with in the Middle East right now. It was just happening left and right in the story. And then all of a sudden, God settles it. And David's king. So David has a sense of only God could have done this. This is a miracle. This is God's grace. And so my question for us by way of application is, do we, do we see the things that God's done in our life as, as God's grace to us? Do we recognize that this is something that, that he's done? As you go on and read the text, it tells a little more details about the story. He says in verse 6, uh, Behold, we heard of it, going back to the dwelling place of God, we heard of it in Ephratha, which was a neighborhood of Jerusalem, and we found it in the fields of Jair. So this is a field out in the country where, where the Ark of the Covenant, God's, God's resting place, where the law and his mercy is symbolized there. He, they found that out in this place called Jair. And so they're just referring to the historical story there in, in Kings, how this unfolded, how David found it, and then how they brought it in. Or not Kings, Samuel. Um, and then it says, verse 7, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So again, they're singing this in worship, heading to the place where they will worship, and they're saying, God, remember the promises that David made to you. Remember how he built this place for you. And of course, after the exile, we understand this to be later, it gotten destroyed, and 
rebuilt, but they're, they're worshiping, going to the place where God's presence rested, and they're saying, return, right? Bring, bring revival, God. Finish, finish all the stuff that you started, right? That's in a similar way, kind of where we live. Like, okay, I get it. God loves me. Jesus died for me. Okay, God, let's, let's have perfection now, right? I want to be done with sin. I want to be healthy. I want world peace. Let's, let's get there. And that's kind of how they're singing here. God, we, we want to see this revival. We want to see you do all the things that you've said that you're going to do. David makes this promise to God, and we're uh, encouraged to remember this promise because it's highlighted here in Psalm 132. And, and what I want us to do is I want to recognize that the promise that David makes is not about David being a hero. It's about David recognizing God's grace. So David is a worshiper who responds to God's grace. So we are to remember David's promise, and worshipers ask God to remember David's promise, but really David's promise is worship, a response to God out of a heart of recognizing that God is gracious. David says, you've done all this. I'm, I'm amazed at your grace to me. I'm amazed that you've given me this kingdom. And so God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing. I'm going to build this permanent place for you. I'm going to build this house for you. I'm going to build this temple because I love you. There's other places where David makes music because he loves God. There's other places where David dances like a maniac, right? Because he loves God. There are these things that David does in response because he's a worshiper whose heart has been changed. And what I want you to see is that that's what God wants from us, right? So God may not be calling on on you to, to build a temple. I would say it's, you know, too late in the game for that, right? That, that part of history has already passed, but God is calling on us to respond in worship to God. Do you understand the connection I'm making there? So David is highlighted as an example for us because he loved God, not because he was perfect. We have all kinds of stories in the historical books that he, he did awful, terrible things, but he had a heart after God. God had changed his heart, had melted his heart, had continued to show him grace, and we should see ourselves the same way, not as some awesome hero, but as someone who's been shown grace. And so we respond, we make promises, we respond in worship, we do things, we take actions, we give of our time or our resources or our talent or uh, our efforts to worship and honor God. And that's what, that's what David was doing here. I think another parallel in the New Testament is Luke chapter 7. Uh, so someone else that does something like David is in Luke 7 where the woman that was a sinful woman was anointing Jesus' feet. Do you all remember that story? It's one of the more famous stories from the gospel. So in Luke 7, Jesus is hanging out at the religious leader's house and this sinful woman comes in and weeps and washes his feet and anoints his feet with, with perfume and cleans his feet. Um, and there's a lot of cultural distance there, right? So like I said, I'm not saying that God calls on us to build a temple. I'm not saying God calls on us to, to weep or perfume someone's feet. But I'm saying God calls on us to respond in love. Jesus even says in that story in Luke 7, the one who's been forgiven much will love much. And he was really condemning the religious leader, saying, religious leader, you don't love God. So the danger for us as religious people in a religious room on a religious night is that we wouldn't actually realize how much God loves us because we, we think we're pretty good. We, we don't think we have something to be forgiven of. And, and so what I'm calling us to is to have this posture that David had and that the woman at Jesus' feet had. I think I have a picture here, an old woodcut. This woman weeping at Jesus' feet, that we would have this posture of worship, 
because we recognize that God has shown grace to us. The gospel story, the story that we're called on to remember, beyond David's promise to God, the bigger story is that we're sinners that need a Savior, and God has shown us mercy through Jesus. So just like the ark showed God's people, there is absolute justice with the God of the universe, and that mercy is poured out so that God sees us through mercy. The cross shows us the same thing. There is an absolute law that God has, but because of Christ meeting that law for us, we're shown mercy. And so when we recognize that, then we pour our life out in worship. Again, I'm not giving you the specifics. I'm not telling you to build a temple. I'm not telling you to weep at Jesus' feet. Maybe someday we'll get to do that. But I'm telling you to respond with the gifts, with whatever you've got in your tool belt, uh, on your bookshelf, in your life, in your background, to respond in worship to God, to, to give yourself wholeheartedly to Him, to remember David's promise in that way. In the next section, then, we're called on to remember God's promise back to David. Okay, so look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So here's the promise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take someone that's one of your physical descendants, and I'm going to set him on the throne. There's going to be this forever kingdom, basically, through David's line. I give some details here. Uh, so within this unconditional promise that there will be a future Davidic king that will rule the world, he's giving some conditional sections now, the fine print. It says in verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So here we kind of have this, this both physical and perfect spiritual future to this promise. So Jesus is born as a real physical descendant. So he fulfills the physical nature of that, but there were long times of history where there wasn't a Davidic king on the throne, right? So the promise wasn't so much that God promised to always have a king on the throne that descended from David, but that someday there would come the perfect king that would rule forever. Do y'all see the distinction? So within the unconditional promises that God is always making, God says, I'm going to be God, I'm just, I'm merciful, and I'm going to show that to the world. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save a people for myself. I'm going to make you, God's people, be a light to all the nations. God's, can, God's fulfilling all those promises. And then within that, there are these conditional aspects of it where he says, and if you sin, I'm going to chastise you, right? Or I'm going to discipline you. If we're disciplined, Hebrews 12 tells us that shows that God loves us, that he's our, he's our daddy, he's our father. And so God's discipline of his people falls within his love for his people. And so it goes on in verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. So again, geography-wise, Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem is, right? That's where the temple was built. That was the capital. That was where they worshiped. Um, so all this is the same place. It kind of confuses us sometimes because the words bounce around, but Zion and Jerusalem are the same place. So the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place, saying he's, he's going to dwell there. And this is an important uh, theme throughout Scripture. Uh, let, me, let me finish, get through the text, and we're going to come back to the dwelling theme, okay? So in verse 14, it says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. 
There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. Um, Here again, strange poetic language, two things. He's saying David's going to be a lamp and David's going to sprout a horn, okay? So those are both poetic, right? So again, we'd say these are true, but we interpret them as poetry. So when it says David's going to sprout a horn, that doesn't mean like a horn growing out of his head. It means through David's line, a great power will come, a a king. Uh, A horn in scripture could be translated as like a great sword, a great army, uh, a great tank in our language, right? Or a, a great and future dominion of a king, right? So through David's line, this power is coming. This strength is coming. And then he says, and I prepared a lamp for my anointed. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, there will be light, right? People are going to see like a, like a lighthouse. And throughout the Old Testament, we're told that, um, that God's anointed and God's people will be a light to the world. And then he says in verse 18, His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is an interesting reversal again of of where we were left hanging with Psalm 89. So in Psalm 89, at the end of section 3 of the Psalms, they were saying, but your king's been humiliated. But your king's crown has been crushed into the dirt. And here that's been reversed saying, no, his crown's going to shine and his enemies will be humiliated. Now, a direct answer to the questions of Psalm 89. So Psalm 89 about the Davidic covenant is kind of left with like, God, are you going to do this because everything's falling apart? Psalm 132 says, yeah, he's going to do this. He's going to finish what he started. And even the language before that about, I'm going to bless her with provisions and her priests will, um, I'll clothe with salvation, her saints will shout with joy. It's it's looking forward to that future that we talk about of, yeah, God's going to make all things right. We look forward to the future, not so much of us flying away from here, uh, and going off to heaven, but of heaven coming down. Uh, again and again, there's this picture of heaven coming down. We see that pictured in Christ. When you read Revelation, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, everything being renewed, and the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. Uh, and so it's not so much our, our Gnostic ideal of escape from here, but it's here being transformed. Uh, and Jesus embodies that in the incarnation. Jesus comes, and he's one of us, and he makes, he makes all things right through his death. And resurrection. So we look forward to a new phrase I just came up with, the, the heavenifying of earth. Okay, Does that sound like a good one? Do I have any grammarians here? Can I say that? The heavenifying of, of the earth is what we look forward to, and that's kind of the vision, the future vision we see talked about here, that he is really going to reign, that this is really going to happen. Uh, now, if you study theology, some Christians disagree about the details of how this unfolds. Uh, at our church, we, we believe that there's going to be this in between time called the millennium where uh, Jesus is going to reign earthly in Jerusalem before the new heavens and the new earth happen. Now, I don't believe that because of theology, because I don't even really hold to the theology that uh, historically comes up with that anymore, dispensationalism. I'm a little more uh, covenantal in my view of the scriptures, but I hold to it because it's taught in Revelation 20 and in all these prophetical books that talk about some kind of future where things are awesome and heavenly, but it's not heaven yet. Um, so in my mind, that makes sense. So we see this millennium in Revelation 20, and then we see all these prophecies that talk about there's going to be something better than this that's not quite the future eternal reality. That's my view, but you don't have to hold that view to be a believer. Historically, uh, Christians have like multiple views of the end times, and all Christians agree in the return of Christ and that Jesus wins, okay? So that's kind of what we rally around. Jesus is coming back, and it's all going to be finished. Um, so we do know uh, that 
Jesus is this promised Davidic king, and he is making all things right, and we look forward to that future where it's all going to be settled. What we disagree on is sometimes the order, like, is this going to happen first, or that's going to happen first, but we know we're getting there, right? That's the direction we're going. What I want to uh, just hang on here for a second, we've got a few more minutes, is in verse 13 and 14, where he talks about his dwelling place, okay? So we said uh, the presence of God would, would be visibly seen coming down on the temple or the tabernacle, the, the mercy seat and the ark. There would be like this cloud and this visible uh, presence of his glory. And he referred to it as dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I've desired it. So 13 and 14, just reiterate that. I, I promise that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell in this city among these people. So that's a promise that God has made. And what's really interesting is uh, to look throughout the Old Testament. Like if you were to just read the whole Bible this week with a highlighter, this is the most common promise in the Bible. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. I will be your God, you'll be my people, I will live among you. God says that again and again throughout the, throughout the Bible. So I'll, uh, I'll give you five bucks if you take my challenge this week and read the whole Bible and highlight those for me. Uh, that'd be really good because I can have all of them highlighted in one place. Um, but that is, that is the most common promise throughout the Bible. He says it again and again, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to live among you. And I want you to think about this for a second, right? Like, have you ever been gone for a long time and come home? Like, I know we've got guys just coming back from deployment. It just, it's just good to be home, right? It just feels so good to be home. I have a, a picture here of uh, there's the main gate at Fort Hood, which, of course, nothing screams home like the main gate, right? Um, but I had in mind that, that being on a trip and driving in and seeing the city limit sign, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're driving home, and you're like, oh, we're here. Or maybe it's like that, that geographical distinction, right, of we don't have mountains here, but when you go back home, there's mountains. And when you see the mountains from a distance, your heart gets happy, Right? Or maybe uh, we don't have trees here, and you see trees from a distance, your heart gets happier, whatever it is. There's lots of things we don't have here that you might see when you're going home. Um, I, I know that feeling, you know, or the feeling like when you've been sleeping on a cot, and then now you're back in your bed. Or you've been away from your family, but now you're with your family. You've been living out a suitcase, uh, but now you're at home, and you're settled. And I, I just want you to hear this. God says he's going to make his home with us, Right? That's what God promises again and again. John picks it up in John 1. He says, God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled with us. He makes his home with us. That's the promise again and again. So I I want you to believe that. So a lot of hard things going through our church right now. People having the diagnosis they don't want to have sickness. Uh, People losing their jobs. Hard times. What I want you to know is that when when you get that diagnosis, or, or when you are betrayed, or when you can't sleep, or when you lose your job, God is still with you. He's promised to make his home with you. And I, I want you to believe that. I don't want you to believe that he's flown away, that he's abandoned. That's the promise of Scripture. He says, I'm going to make my home with you. He, he says in Colossians 1 that he, he gives us a spirit. John says kind of the same thing in the Gospel of John, John 14. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with you. And then Colossians, that idea is picked up. And so in Colossians 1.27, it says, we have this hope of glory, the Spirit living in us. God has made his home with us. The Spirit lives in us, right? In other places in the New Testament, in Corinthians, it says, we are the temple of God because 
God's Spirit dwells in us. He's made His home with us. Yet we, we groan, as it says in Romans 8. We long to be done with the suffering. We long to not be sick anymore, to not be broken anymore. And, and Colossians talks about that too. It says, to not fix your eyes on these earthly things, but fix your eyes on Christ where he reigns as king, where he's sitting on the throne of David right now with God, where he's ruling and reigning, and fix your eyes on his reign. Recognize that he is in charge and recognize that when he appears in your life, will appear with him also. It says it this way in Colossians 3, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died, right? The old us has died, it's gone, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The only life we have now is, is what's in him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we live between these two pieces that are talked about in Colossians. And like I said, this is all over the scriptures. And in Colossians 1.27, it says the spirit is with you. God's with you now. And then in Colossians 3, it says we long for the day when really we'll, we'll appear. Our life will really be full will be complete when Jesus appears. And that's, that's where we live now. We're moving, we're moving from one to the other, but what I want you to hear is he's with us now. Again, John 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going, but I'm sending you the Spirit. The Spirit lives with us now. God has made his dwelling among us. The greatest promise and the most common promise of the Scripture is true now. Do we want to see more of it? Yeah. Do we want to see a fuller realization of this? Yes. But he's with us now, and we have to believe that. We need to hold to that when, when everything is falling apart. So the last thing, just to wrap up, that we want to remember is that Jesus is the promise, right? We talked about how this is foreshadowed in, in the mercy seat. So in the place where God comes down and God dwells is you've got the law of God and you've got the sacrificial mercy seat of God, right? So we've got law and grace, justice and love, and we see that now through the cross. So I, I grabbed a picture of Jesus on the cross from the Passion movie. And I'm not going to leave that up there because we don't really know what Jesus looked like on the cross. But we know that he suffered and he died for us, right? We know that both justice and grace was seen there at the cross. That God is just and he has a, a righteous anger towards our sin, towards our betrayal, towards our rebellion, towards him. But Jesus bore that for us. He, he took that upon himself. So he gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. And that, that's what transforms us. That's what makes this livable. That's what turns us into people that can then live that way for others, right? That can have a life of service, have a life of love for those around us. I want you to remember that Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the promise. He is the son of David that's been promised. And uh, we see this in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. I'm just going to run through these real quick, rapid fire, and then we'll be done. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 tells us that this is the book of genealogy of the son of David, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 21, the crowd is shouting to him, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Save us, son of David. That's what they're shouting to Jesus. In Luke 2, we're told that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house of David. And in Acts 2, we're told that he is the greater David because uh, David of history died and was buried, but this greater son of David, who is God himself, rose from the dead. Peter preaches that in Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 15, James says 
He's the fulfillment of the prophecies of Amos, the the prophecies of Amos that say this, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, right? The house of David will be rebuilt that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And James says that's happening because every tongue and tribe and people group are coming into the household of God through this new King David, right? This greater David, the son of David, Jesus Christ himself. So even in this room, I'm just going to make a guess and say we have eight, ten ethnic groups right here, and it's just a small taste of what God is doing worldwide, right? He's bringing all the nations in to David's tent. He's rebuilding the kingdom of David as the nations come into the household of God. That's what James said in Acts chapter 15. In Romans 1.3, he says, Paul says his gospel was about this son who was descended from David. And in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel. And then in Revelations 5, 5, it says it this way, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He, he is that conquering hero. He's that root of David. He's that greater son of David, both fully man, but also fully God. And as uh, psalm scholars look at the book of Psalms, one thing that stands out is we have these promises about a worldwide conquering king that will be a descendant of David. And we also have these very intimate, um, touching psalms of grief and lament of a suffering king, of the David who cried and was betrayed and suffered for us, the hardships that he endured. only Jesus makes sense of the picture of the Psalms. Only Jesus makes sense of intuitively what we know that life is hard, but there's also something better, right? The world is supposed to be right, but it's broken. Only Jesus makes sense of the picture in the Psalms that says there's going to be this great king that's going to rule and reign and everything's going to be right and just. But there was also this great king that suffered, that bled, that cried for us. And, and that's how we're getting there. Is through his, through his suffering. Let me pray for us. God, we, we thank you that you are that king. We thank you that you came to us. As it says in John 1, uh, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what that really means, that you would help us to wrestle, wrestle that out as, as we struggle day to day uh, with our own suffering. But we pray that you would give meaning to it as we follow you and that you would help us to be uh, like your son, one who serves others in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.